and welcome to Knowing Nature, the podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. My name's Victor, and in this episode, I'm joined by Maggie and Katya, two environmental educators. We're going to be talking about climate change over the course of the next few episodes. In this first episode, we're going to give you a little bit of background information on climate change and climate science. And then in the next episode, we're going to be talking about ways to approach climate change inside your classrooms and how to approach some of the trickier aspects of the topic. So Katya, this is your first time on the podcast. Welcome. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yes, thank you. Hi, everybody, and thanks for having me. So I have an academic background in philosophy. I'm actually a philosopher, but I also uh, studied sustainability studies in in my master, and um, I work since five years as an educator. I've been working in in different sectors, um, all related to environmental education, uh, from the waste sector to conservation, more recently, I work for a charity. We uh, run projects in schools, uh, secondary and primary, and we teach sustainability, climate change related lessons. And also we run entire programs of forest school and outdoor learning. Also joining us is Maggie. Welcome back to the show, Maggie. Thank you for having me again, Victor. My background is actually in social anthropology as well as primary education. I've worked in environmental education, outdoors for about five years in various organisations and now more more recently in a museum where I teach natural history as well as anthropology to school groups and the topic of climate change has been coming up over and over again in my discussions with children and the topics we teach that is something I need to tackle on any basis as an educator. And of course, my name is Victor, and I've been working in environmental education now for eight or nine years. And I've done a master's in communication, and I focused during that master's on communication about climate change, specifically science and climate change. And recently at the Natural History Museum, I've been working on a handling station, so a specimen handling station focused on climate change. All three of us, I think, have been coming at this from a few different angles. We work in different settings as well. So it'd be great to have um, both of your perspectives in on this discussion. So first off, we need a little bit of climate science. So, So when you're talking about climate change, it's important to get your head around a few different terms. The first term is global warming. And global warming describes what scientists see happening to the planet as a whole. So using measurements from weather stations, from satellites, from ocean temperatures, we can see that on average the Earth's temperature is gradually increasing. And so we call this global warming. Some people might choose to use the term global heating, and that's because it is a bit more of a neutral term. It's still accurate, it describes an increase in global temperatures, But global warming, depending on where you're from, can make it sound like quite a pleasant thing. So for those of us living here in the UK, when we think global warming, we think, ah, well, actually, it'd be quite nice if our winters and our summers were maybe a little bit warmer. Doesn't sound too bad. But global heating doesn't have those same kinds of implications. And so it's a a kind of a more neutral term. So you might hear some people using the term global heating. But again, it refers to the same thing. Uh, 
average temperatures increasing around the world over time. The next term is, of course, climate change. And climate change describes what's happening on a more local level. So climate is the long-term average conditions in a particular location on the Earth. Now, when we're talking about climate change, it's important to remember that there is a difference between weather and climate. Weather describes what's going on outside your window right now. Climate refers to the conditions in an area averaged out over a really long period of time, so over years or decades. So while it's really difficult to predict what the weather is going to be like in any particular place on Earth, it's much easier to predict what the climate is going to be like. So we know that areas around the equator are going to tend to have warmer climates than areas closer to the poles. And we know that some areas of the world tend to be rainier than others, so they'll have wetter climates than others. So climate change refers to changes in these long-term average conditions. So another term you might hear people use is climate breakdown. And this refers to the same thing as climate change, and that again is the local impact of global warming. But what the term climate breakdown does is it gets across the idea that we're moving away from what had been quite a stable system. The cycles and patterns that have kept climates quite stable are starting to break down. So here in the UK, for instance, our climate is currently kept quite mild by the Gulf Stream, which is this current that carries warm water from tropical areas of the Atlantic Ocean up to the northern latitudes. And what we're starting to see as global temperatures increase is a slowdown of this current. And if this current stops, it could lead to really dramatic changes in the climates of northern Europe, probably leading to much colder weathers. And so the slowing of the stopping of the Gulf Stream would be a breakdown in one of the systems that makes the northern Atlantic climate what it is. So the terms climate change and climate breakdown, therefore, they refer to the same thing, but they're trying to get across slightly different ideas. So climate change is a slightly more neutral term. It doesn't really sound like it's particularly good or particularly bad. And what climate breakdown does is try to get across the sense of the seriousness of it and how negative the consequences of these changes in climate could be. So how do we know that this stuff is happening? Scientists gather evidence from around the world. We've got many direct measurements that these things are happening. So we know from weather stations, which have been recording weather patterns and temperatures uh, from all over the world for over 100 years now, they all show us this fairly consistent pattern. When you average it out over a long period of time, we can see that there has been an increase in temperatures. We also have records of ocean temperatures. We have records of when flowering times have started. And again, these all show us a very similar picture that flowering times have been moving earlier in the year, and this corresponds to an overall increase in average temperatures. Now in climate science, when we're talking about uh, global warming and climate change, often we have things split into three big categories. Um, often we talk about forcings, we talk about feedbacks, and then we talk about tipping points. So part one, forcings. Forcings are factors which are pushing global temperatures in a certain direction. First off, we've got energy coming in from the sun. And this energy coming in from the sun is going to tend to push the global temperature upwards. That's where the energy comes from. Next, we have CO2 and other greenhouse gases. 
Now, all gases absorb and re-emit light in different wavelengths. CO2 and other greenhouse gases, they are good at absorbing infrared light, and infrared light is heat radiation. Carbon dioxide, methane, and other greenhouse gases, again, they absorb infrared light, and then they re-radiate that energy out in all directions. So what that means is that some of the heat from the Earth's surface, as it travels up through the air towards space, it gets absorbed by carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, and then it gets radiated out in all directions. That means that some of the light will get radiated out into space, but some of it also gets bounced back down to the Earth. And so increasing the concentrations of carbon dioxide is meaning that more of that heat is getting radiated back down onto the Earth instead of escaping the atmosphere and going out into space. And so the concentration of greenhouse gases forces uh, global temperature up. It pushes it upwards. Another common forcing mechanism is the amount of dust and other particles in the air. So these particles, some of them, will reflect light back out into space. And that is a forcing that will decrease global temperatures because that's less energy that's making it down onto the Earth's surface. It's getting bounced back out into space instead. However, some small particles, things like soot, they're very dark in color and that will tend to absorb light. But then again, they're going to re-radiate it as heat. You can think of a dark surface on a sunny day. When you put your hand on it, it feels really warm. And that's because it's absorbing that visible light and other parts of the spectrum. And then it radiates it. It puts it back out again as heat. So some particles will do that. And those will tend to push or force the Earth's temperature upwards. So there's some examples of different forcings. The next mechanism in climate change are things that we call feedbacks. And so a feedback, that's when the output of a system or a process affects the system or a process itself. So a common example for that is when you've got a microphone too close to a speaker. So what happens then is what you say into the microphone comes out the speaker, and that's, that's a, a system or a process, but then it affects itself because what comes out the speaker gets picked up again by the microphone and then goes out the speaker again. And so you end up with this loop, this feedback loop. So examples of feedback loops that affect climate are melting of ice. Ice tends to be white or very reflective. And that means that when light hits ice and snow, a lot of that light gets reflected. It bounces out into space. That's going to tend to push the Earth's temperature, temperature down. As global temperatures rise, we have less snow cover and less ice. And that means that less light is going to get reflected out into space. That's a feedback loop. As temperatures increase, we lose ice. And that means that more energy stays down on the Earth, which means that we have increased temperatures again, which means that we end up with even more snow and ice melting. Another one is thawing of permafrost. So permafrost is areas of ground which are basically kept permanently frozen. And what that means is that the organic matter, the leaf matter and soil stays frozen and that traps carbon. But as temperatures increase, that permafrost melts. And that means that that organic matter, that leaf matter and soil, it can start to rot and decay, which means carbon dioxide and methane, which are both greenhouse gases, get released out into the atmosphere. Again, that's going to tend to trap more heat, 
which means more permafrost is going to melt, which means more of this carbon gets released. And so we have another feedback. So this leads us to tipping points. Tipping points are points where a system is going to move from one state into another. So at the moment in Greenland, Greenland is very far north and it tends to stay quite cool and that means lots of glaciers build up. And there's an annual cycle where in the summer those glaciers are going to melt and they're going to tend to recede, they're going to tend to go further back. But in the winters, snow falls on these glaciers and it doesn't melt and what then happens is we get a buildup of snow and ice and those glaciers will tend to move forward very slightly. So we have this annual cycle with glaciers moving forward very slightly in winter, moving backwards very slightly, but this can reach a tipping point. If temperatures get too high, then on average in a year, that glacier is going to tend to move backwards on average. So that ice sheet overall is going to shrink. And that's because the snow and ice melts faster in the summers than it can build up in the winters. And if that point is reached, then what that means is that over time, that whole ice sheet is going to melt. And again, ice is very reflective. So if we lose that ice sheet, it's going to mean that it's not reflecting as much light back out into space. So what do we do with all this information? We put this information into climate models. This is where we take information from these direct measurements. So we can measure things like ocean temperatures, ocean currents, we can measure how quickly glaciers move forwards and backwards in the season, uh, how much of the surface is covered in ice. We can put all that information into computer models and use that to predict what's going to happen. So for instance, you might program how CO2 concentrations affect heat trapping and how snow cover affects the reflectiveness of the Earth's surface. You put that information into a model, which is kind of a simulation, and then usually what scientists will do is they'll run that model backwards and see if the information that they have, does it match our historical record? What scientists will then do is they'll look at the results and they'll say, okay, our simulation seems to match quite well with our historical records. So if we run the program forwards in time, it should be able to predict what might happen going on into the future. Now, when scientists talk about running computer models, they don't usually run that model one time. Usually what scientists will do is they'll run that model hundreds of times with slight variations in the different factors. So each time they run the model, they might adjust the future CO2 concentrations slightly up or slightly down and see what the results are. They'll look at which of those models most closely match the information that we already have. And then that gives them a good idea for which of those models best predict the future impacts. So this is how scientists use this information to come up with predictions for how much time we have to take action on climate change before we reach those tipping points where we might not be able to come back from them. So now we have a bit of background on some of the climate science. Maggie, can you tell us about some of the impacts? Absolutely. Uh, climate change having an impact of weather, weather patterns in general, and in particular, uh, increase in extreme weather, uh, such as droughts and flooding and sort of abnormally high rainfall, has an impact on flora and fauna around the world. There are three major ways in which animals are impacted by climate change. 
Um, one is um, it reduces their ability to reproduce effectively. Some species, not all, of course, um, especially those species that are heavily dependent on environmental cues. So the beginning of spring or the temperature fall, um, especially in spring or in the autumn where temperature goes down. Um, another way animals are impacted is forced migration. Uh, they are forced to move on from their habitat further south or further north uh, and change their range as their environment is changing. Um, and that goes for both um, insects, birds and mammals. The third major way in which animals are impacted by climate change is it makes it very difficult for them to find enough food. To give you one example of that, if uh, we have one migratory bird that depends on a particular species of insect to emerge at a time of their migration, and that insect emerges late or early, then the source of food they rely on for the migration is gone. Because mm, a lot of insects have really quite narrow windows when they emerge, like I think of mayflies where they'll all emerge within a few days of each other. Exactly. Um, it can be a very short window of opportunity, um, especially for migrating animals. And do you have any examples of forced migration? In terms of bird migration, we now see that birds, for instance, stay in the northern hemisphere a little bit longer. Some of them have stopped migrating back to Africa as the conditions there get drier and much, much warmer and they can find less food. Common birds in the UK, for instance, such as blackcaps, are now more and more likely to stay here over winter as our winters are milder and actually not migrate at all. Some birds might change their route of migration or stay in areas for longer. So it really depends on the species and how the different areas are impacted by climate change. But we see those movements and those changes all across the globe. I can think of also in more mountainous areas, you'll have a lot of species that live only on single mountaintops and nowhere else. And that's because where they live on the mountaintops is a bit cooler. And if they try to go down the mountain, it, it gets too warm down there. So with global warming, they're kind of being pushed further and further up these mountains to higher altitudes where it's the right temperature conditions for them. And you can imagine if the temperatures go up too high, you know, eventually there's going to be a point where they can't go up any further. So then they'll go extinct. One example of a species whose reproduction is affected by climate change are turtles. Uh, the sex of turtles depend on slight variation in temperature difference. Uh, so how, how low down they bury their eggs. And those temperature differences can be as little as two degrees in terms of the change in the sex of that lot of eggs. And we, what scientists have observed is that uh, increasingly uh, turtle eggs uh, end up hatching up um, with the same sac. So you will have, for instance, a reduction of males being born of a particular species. And of course, over time, that can cause a lot of problems for the species. Just recently, I heard a scientist being interviewed who studied sea turtles, and she was saying that it's gone to 90% of the hatchlings are female. And that's because the sand is now warm enough that it's, it's causing all of those turtles to, to be born female. Um, what about impacts on plant communities? As our winters um, here in the global north get milder, 
and the snow melts much sooner. Uh, some of the impacts are earlier flowering times of uh, flowering plants, uh, but also those plants become more susceptible to damage from frost because uh, they started growing and then often you get another spell, cold spell, and maybe some frosty at nights and that damages the, the structure. Another thing scientists have observed is uh, as there is an increase in temperature, plants do grow faster with some temperature increase. However, if the temperature becomes very hot and the conditions very dry, that will weaken their structure and their growth and also leads to damage in fruits. Another quite worrying trend that scientists have observed is a change in flower traits that attract insects. So what we're talking about here is, for instance, uh, lower nectar production and smaller flowers. Um, and this is especially linked to drought, so the flowers get smaller and also they produce less scent, which is what attracts the insects to the flower in the first place. And of course, pollination is so vital to produce um, in production of seeds and, and fruit. So this could cause some problems. So this is being driven by higher greenhouse gas con uh, concentrations in the atmosphere, particularly carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide is one of the things that plants need in order to grow. Yes, what, you, what you're referring to is uh, the phenomena, um, phenomena uh, known as the greenhouse fertilization effect. And so the increase in CO2 does encourage plants to grow faster. However, that is only in some areas in the north of the globe. In addition, you do get this increase in growth. So while you might get an increased yield in terms of just mass, like weight of stuff that you produce, um, apparently there have been a few studies out that look at the nutritional content of that food. And while it's like bigger, there's more of it, it's actually less nutritionally dense. So mm. there's less protein developed in it. And also we know that the effect of this fertilization effect, plants adapt to it over time. So while we might not see that in crops that we harvest every year, so in our, our vegetable crops, if we're counting on things like trees, as that concentration increases, the trees will actually adapt to that and they'll their growth will kind of slow back down to a normal pace. Uh, one aspect of plants and impact of um, climate change we haven't discussed is, of course, their plant-pollinator interaction. One observed phenomena uh, known as decoupling, uh, this is when flowers and pollinators associated with each other that have over thousands of years evolved together, uh, they start to emerge at different times. So the flower might emerge earlier than the insect in question, and that leads to lower reproduction of viable seeds and fruit. Because by the time the bees or other pollinators have, have emerged, those early flowering plants that have flowered even earlier, like they, they might be gone by then. They might have died already by the time the bees emerge. Absolutely, that's right. And I feel that we can't speak about the impact on plants without at least uh, touching upon food, uh, food production and, of course, food security. The Food and Agricultural Organization of United Nations predicts that climate change will have impact on food security on many different levels. It can lead to crop failure, 
new pests and diseases being able to survive under these new conditions, which can lead to whole crops disappearing. And, and presumably what makes all of this more difficult is, is the fact that with the climate changing is meaning that farmers are less able to predict the conditions, so it's harder for them to tell when they should sow their crops so that they'll be able to harvest in time. And rainfall patterns are changing as well in areas. So what types of crops they'll be able to grow is, will also be different. So like with wheat, some varieties of wheat and grains are, are much more tolerant to drought than others. And so depending on where you are and how much rainfall you'll get, you'll grow particular varieties of wheat. But if the conditions are changing in your area and the weather is becoming less predictable, then it's hard to know, okay, should I grow the drought tolerant plants or should I grow the um, variety of wheat that's more tolerant to, to fungal infections, which thrive in wetter, more humid conditions? And of course, another thing to consider is that farmers in tropical regions, developing countries or the so-called global south will not have the same financial power to prevent the disaster, buy in new types of crops or get hold of water to water the crops. I'm thinking in places like the Netherlands, where they grow a huge range of crops and vegetables, but a huge, huge percentage of it is under cover. So it's, they're effectively grown in huge greenhouses. And with those greenhouses, you can control the temperature, you can control the light levels, you can control how much water the plants get. But that kind of infrastructure is not present for farmers in developing countries. You know, they, they don't have the resources to, and it might not be appropriate for them to grow the crops that they grow undercover where they can control all those variables. And I strongly feel that with these uh, disproportional effects on different uh, parts of the world, we, we cannot talk about climate change without talking about climate justice. Because climate change has disproportional impacts on countries in the global south, uh, developing countries, countries that have not been industrialized, lower income communities, indigenous groups, women, children and elderly. This is why policy, funding and regulations uh, should reflect these global inequalities. So Maggie touched on this, that climate change has these very different impacts all around the world, in addition to really concerning impacts on the natural environment. Uh, Katia, could you tell us a bit more about the impacts of climate change in different areas of the world? Before going a bit into, into that, I wanted to make a um, bit of a clarification about the impacts because I think we have a bit of a problem that we are not really aware of the impacts of climate change or we don't perceive them as um, very dangerous, uh, not yet at least. And this is due to one, a bias, a brain bias that is part of our human nature um, but also because of um, because of not having enough coverage. So the, the brain bias, which I found very useful to understand why a little bit, why are we not acting, why are we not doing enough? And uh, we still have a lizard brain, so a, a very primordial brain that is used to react immediately to immediate threats, which was a lion in the jungle uh, or in the savanna or a, a snake. And so we were very good as hunter-gatherers to react to that immediate threat. 
and our brain is strained to to have a, a very efficient uh, management of that sort of um, threats but we didn't learn evolutionary speaking we didn't learn yet to deal with long-term threats and so we don't perceive the immediate danger of climate change unless we see it immediately in front of us so we have two options and education is so crucial for this reason now either we experience the very direct impact which is something that is happening everywhere but we don't notice it very much because the impacts in the in the global north are not as um, as massive yet or we can educate so that we learn to react to this long-term threat even though we are not evolutionarily there yet so i found it quite quite useful because i was constantly wondering why are we so why are we failing in this and actually it's the first time that the human species finds itself to deal with something that is so big but so far away in in a sense the other problem is that in the north, um, in the global north, countries are more resilient because they are richer, their economies are richer, so they can afford to build back after catastrophes have happened. So we deal mostly in the global north, and this means Europe, North America. We, used, uh, we deal mostly with flooding, with extreme weather like hurricanes, droughts also and those events are becoming more and more common but while they are more common we still have more resources to react to it and to build back and this is a big difference because in other parts of the world in the global south there is not this resilience so the impact it's felt it is felt much much more strongly and this makes also a difference in how the problem is perceived so we know, for example, that in the, in, the, in the Pacific, we have islands that are already sinking because they are very low on, on the sea level. And because of um, sea level increase, because of ice melting, these islands are already suffering of being submerged by water. And there are already entire villages that are being forced to migrate. So climate migration and climate refugees is also a very, very current problem. Food security is a very direct consequence. Water scarcity is another one. The impacts will differ depending on the latitude and on the geographic characteristics, but they will impact everybody. There is a difference in perception because certain countries in the global north are more resilient and they can react much better. Uh, while the global south, south uh, is already suffering because they don't have, there isn't the economic capacity to build back. I think it might be worth considering the different impacts that it's going to have on different communities, even within a single country. Mm. So within the UK, for instance, farming communities are going to feel the impacts of climate change much more acutely and directly because it's going to affect their their crops each year, and so they'll see those impacts. Those of us who live in more urban environments, we're much more cushioned because our jobs aren't gonna be directly impacted by climate change in the short term in the same way that a farmer's might be. So the final big thing to talk about as a primer to climate change is understanding 
how all of this information and research comes together. How do we know, how can we know how solid this information is? So what, what happens is that uh, there are international bodies that are meant to be independent. Um, so not um, too much um, biased by governments and, and they should be there to actually protect the interests of everybody uh, on this planet. And so I would mention the UN also because uh, when the United Nations were funded after World War II, among their objectives, there was also sustainable development. It was already mentioned that. So we, we do have this framework for a sustainable um, future already very back in time. Um, so within the UN, we also have UNEP, which is the United Nations Environment Program, and it's a specific program. Uh, it was launched in 1972, which is specifically directed at dealing with environmental problems from terrestrial to marine ecosystems to uh, problems of governance to how to develop and grow sustainably uh, and, and all um, other specific issues uh, like deforestation and so on. So we have already this commitment internationally from a very, very long time. The main uh, organization is, is the IPCC. So the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It was set up in 1988 and it, it's really the main uh, place where everyone gathers together and all all these pieces of science they come together they discuss with each other and they come up with some conclusions that are shared peer-reviewed and shared and and what they do with it is they are meant to help policymakers to formulate effective policies so in a way the ipcc um, works for, for governments and it has to phrase uh, science and give data and information that will help governments to make decisions uh, and, and promote policies and, and legislations. Um, so what we have there is a sort of a compromise but also a quite balanced uh, result of many, many, many uh, researchers and experts coming together regularly and confronting, discussing with each other. And, and so this is the most reliable source of information that we can, we can have, or, or we have at the moment at least. So it is now accepted by the 99% of the scientific community that climate change is human induced, which means that the human activity since the industrial revolution has, um, has is responsible for this very fast increase in greenhouse gases and in, 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 in the increase in temperature. And what they do, they put together all those scenarios that you, you mentioned, all the data that are uh, existing and, and currently available, and they predict as, uh, to the best of their knowledge what will happen and therefore what the best policies and, and legislations um, would, would tackle the issues and then they disperse this with, with government. They, they make it available to all the governments and there are currently 195 governments involved in the IPCC. So I hope this crash course in climate change and climate science gives you some framework for understanding this very complicated issue and field. 
Don't worry if you've missed out on any of the things that we've talked about. As ever, there will be detailed notes on everything we've talked about, including sources if you're interested in getting more information on anything we talked about in the episode. Check out the notes at our website, which is knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. And thank you very much to my guests, Maggie and Katya. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Victor. So if anything wasn't clear, again, you can send us an email at knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com or you can follow us on Twitter at KN underscore podcast and you can send us, tweet at us there, any questions or comments you might have. Next episode, we'll talk about how to approach this very big, complicated issue in classrooms. Thanks for listening. 